Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night. You are listening to WXOJLP 103.3 FM in Northampton. And we are going to spend the next hour uh, talking about science like we do every Friday uh, evening. And unfortunately, it is becoming that time of year where when I leave the studio, it's dark. And that does make me sort of sad, but uh, the seasons do have to progress. Um, so yeah, remember that you can find me online throughout the week at uh, my Facebook page, which is, of course, Evidence-Based Radio. And you can also email me at evidencebasedradio at gmail.com. And so if you have a question, a suggestion, if you want to tell me how wrong I am about any number of things that you could possibly think I'm wrong about. Um, I'd, I would love to hear from you. Um, so again, evidence-based-radio at gmail.com. Okay, so as usual, the world is kind of falling apart. And I, like you, I would assume, uh, if you're a rational person, are having a hard time dealing with it. Uh, so let us again sort of walk back from that. Uh, I just... You know, I do want to always acknowledge the fact uh, for sort of the historical record that uh, everything pretty much that's happening right now in our country is upsetting uh, on the political uh, on the political stage, I should say. I mean, there's lots of individually nice things happening in the world. But as far as uh, the country as an entity, um, all sorts of terrible things are happening. Um, the people of Puerto Rico are still in dire need of help, and it's really hard to get supplies and help for them. And part of the reason for that is because we have let them continue to basically not have great infrastructure to begin with. So when you don't have great infrastructure to begin with, and then you have a terrible uh hurricane come, then this is what happens. Pretty much the entire island loses the ability to get around, loses electricity. And that's on us. Because Puerto Rico is, as much as some people don't like to remember, part of the US. Um, and so yeah, distressing to say the least. Um, but again, this is sort of our uh, momentary safe space. And so let us distract ourselves with science. Um, and so tonight, we're going to start off with several stories that are kind of in the realm of medicine. And then we will switch gears pretty much completely and talk about a couple of archaeological stories. Okay, so <laughs> let us start off by talking about, and you probably know this is coming if you've listened to this show before, we're going to talk about getting your flu shot. <laughs> um, I'll be getting mine soon, I hope. I usually get it through my employer, and I always am trying to figure out when exactly they're going to do that. I always end up calling and being like, are you still going to do this? And they're like, no, we're totally going to do it, just not this instant. Um, but luckily, you have until the end of October to really get it effectively. 
And so the CDC is reporting that around only around 47% of Americans got the flu shot last year. And that's pretty unfortunate. And in fact, it's so unfortunate that if the rate had been just 5% higher, 490,000 illnesses and 7,000 hospitalizations could have been avoided, according to Dr. Tom Price, lover of private jets, and just within the last few hours, former secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Um, And I noted earlier in the day, while he may be a terrible person and a lousy politician, in this case, he's basically just providing you information that he got from actual doctors at the CDC. So, you know, when he makes this sort of a press conference, it's not him saying this, it's actual doctors at the CDC, so we can still trust his numbers. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, while the messenger might not be uh, welcomed, the message is still true. Uh, And also, there were several other more qualified people at the press conference uh, this afternoon before things kind of took a turn. Uh, Also at the press conference was Dr. Daniel Jernigan, director of the Influenza Division at the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases. And he noted that almost 600,000 people were hospitalized last season due to the flu. Now, last season's flu vaccine was 42% effective, which, again, always seems like it's not that effective. But if you think about the alternatives, it definitely is. It means that you're 42% less likely to have gotten a strain of the flu last year than if you hadn't gotten the flu. I'm, I'm sorry, if you hadn't gotten the flu vaccine. And so when you spread that across the entire populace, that means it prevented an estimated 5.2 million cases of flu, 2.7 million doctor's visits due to the flu, and 86,000 hospitalizations, some of which may have ended in death. Now, again, it's recommended to get the shot by the end of October to really have it be effective. And um, I had mentioned before, I think last week, that there had been some sort of inkling that there might be a possible link between flu shots and miscarriage. But it turns out that looking at the study more closely, um, they're really not willing to say that there is a real risk at the moment. Um, More study would need to be done. And so both the CDC and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists are keeping with the recommendation that pregnant women do go ahead and get the flu vaccine because contracting flu during pregnancy can have a known detrimental effect on pregnant women. And so definitely everyone should be getting it. All Anyone over the age of six months old should be getting the flu shot. Now, um, actually thinking of sort of the different stages of uh, people who should be getting it, there was one area of hope for flu vaccine compliance last year. More than 76% of children between the ages of 6 and 23 months received the flu vaccine, uh, according to Patricia Stinchenfield, who is a pediatric nurse practitioner and the Senior Director of Infection Prevention and Control at Children's Minnesota. 
And so the goal had been 70%. So that's pretty exciting, even though really it should be much closer to 95% uh, if we really want everyone to be protected. And so children at this age are especially vulnerable to complications from the flu. So it's really good for them to be able to get it. And in fact, a recent study in the journal Pediatrics reported that having received a flu vaccine can reduce the risk of death from flu by 51% in children with health problems and by 65% in healthy children. So Stinchfield's Hospital, for instance, looked at records for the past three years, and they noted that children who were severely ill from the flu had a 57% chance, higher chance of not having gotten a flu shot compared to those who ended up getting less less sick from the flu. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, around 85% of flu deaths in the United States are actually among those over the age of 65. So if you are within that age group, it is especially crucial for you to receive your flu vaccination. Now, of course, we always have to talk about how flu is not a cold. If you have the flu, it is a serious infection. It can lead to hospitalization. And a lot of times what happens is that you end up with secondary infections. You can get pneumonia. And that's why a lot of older people are more susceptible to it because not only is their immune system less um, robust than younger people, but also that secondary pneumonia is really, uh, it's, it's really, really dangerous for older people. And so just get a flu vaccine (laughs) and you'll be much better off Um, just in every way, shape and form. That's, that's just, you know, That is the recommendation. Okay, so let's move on now and talk about another story, which is actually pretty exciting. Uh, Even though it's not about a terribly exciting topic, it's about something that's kind of serious. But uh, in recognition of National Gay Men's HIV AIDS Awareness Day, the CDC has issued a memo stating that, quote, On this day, we join together in taking actions to prevent HIV among gay and bisexual men and ensure that all gay and bisexual men living with HIV can get the care they need to stay healthy. Now, that's a pretty bland statement, uh, but what is truly important is a bit later in the statement. And so they go on to say, when... uh, antiretroviral treatment uh, results in viral suppression defined as less than 200 copies per milliliter or undetectable levels. It prevents sexual transmission, sexual HIV transmission across three different studies, including thousands of couples and many thousands of sex acts without a condom or pre-exposure prophylactics, um, which is often referred to as PrEP. The statement continues, No HIV transmission to an HIV-negative partner were observed when the HIV-positive person was virally suppressed. This means that people who who take ART daily as prescribed and achieve and maintain an undetectable viral load have effectively no risk of sexually transmitting the virus to an HIV-negative partner. 
That's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> um, but basically, what they're saying is something that a lot of other health organizations, and especially health organizations that are closely working with these gay uh, communities and with other communities that are affected by um, HIV have been saying for a while. And in fact, the evidence for this has been building for 20 years. And so it's huge for the CDC to finally come out and say, yes, we believe this. Um, It's really important for people with HIV to know that they can trust that this is a true statement and that the science is there. And it really helps destigmatize people. And so this is just huge. And so the three studies referred to are the Partner Opposites Attract and the HPTN052. And as they noted, it covered tens of thousands of sex acts between serio-different couples. um, And that's, of course, where one is infected and one is not, both between both gay and straight couples, and found zero transmission when the HIV-positive member was virally suppressed enough to be considered undetectable. And so this is really, really exciting. Um, And so Bruce Richman, executive director of the Prevention Access Campaign's Undetectable Equals Untransmittable campaign, notes that This isn't advising people with HIV and their partners to abandon condoms or PrEP. Being undetectable is another powerful powerful option in the HIV prevention toolbox to be used in combination with other prevention options or independently depending on the circumstances. Now, Richmond also thanked all the pioneering people and partners in the community and in the city, state, and federal health departments who worked together to ensure the message is aligned with the science and make this change. What a beautiful moment. Um, And so if you're not, you know, part of this community, it might not make a lot of sense to you why this is so important. Um, But again, a lot of this is about the stigma, about, um, you know, people feeling like they can't talk about the fact that they have HIV um, because people really are just looking at them as if there's some sort of, you know, walking disease vector. But for many of these people, their viral load is undetectable. And so they cannot transmit the disease. And it's so important for people to know that. And um, so this is actually really, really exciting. Um, and so, yeah, uh, the CDC's new language is a result of the U S department of health and human services review of viral suppression and HIV transmission messaging across departments, which will be rolling out in the coming weeks and months. Um, and so that is very good. And, um, he also acknowledged that people living with HIV who quote, have been leading the way for this change here in the U S and around the world, our experience as part of the review process. And as early as last summer with HHS, um, the national institutes of health and the CDC has been productive and positive, even when the gaps in our positions seemed wide, we appreciate their commitment and decisive action to follow the date the data during a time when our health and human rights have been continually under assault. And so that's another thing is that um, it seems like the CDC has really been working closely with the gay community and has 
um, you know, really welcomed them as a player at the table for making these decisions, which is, you know, very good. And um, this is just such good news. And, you know, it can be really discouraging for people who are HIV positive, but are managing their disease to constantly be feeling like people don't understand that, you know, we've come a long way. And in fact, I think that that's one of the big takeaways here is how remarkable it is, how far we've come from the early days of the disease, where having HIV, having it become AIDS was inevitable, and that it was inevitable early death sentence. Um, And so that's really excellent. Now, of course, it's not all good news. This is still a disease that can be deadly. And so according to a recent Morbidity and Mortality Weekly report, only 61% of gay and bisexual men living with diagnosed HIV have achieved viral suppression. Now, this is actually an increase from previous years, but obviously there is still a lot of work to be done. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of various reasons for this, Um, you know. Gay um, men especially, um, gay and bisexual men, uh, a lot of gay men have problems with employment and with uh, having, being possibly homeless. A lot of people are homeless and being homeless makes it really hard to obtain HIV uh, suppressing drugs and even with programs that are out there. It can be really hard if people have other issues. And, you know, one of the problems with this is that you do have to be committed um, in the sense that you have to take your pills every single day. Um, And a lot of times it's several pills at different times of the day. And so the, the regiment can be really hard. And if you're not in a stable place, that's sometimes impossible. And so unfortunately, this is definitely still a disease where, um, you know, poverty is a huge issue with this, um, with being able to actually get to the point where you are managing your disease. And so we still clearly have a long way to go before um, we really have everyone doing okay. But hopefully, this is going to continue to uh, be better despite whatever else is going on in the world, um, you know, and so you have to have some hope. <laughs> and um, yeah, okay, so we're going to stick with STDs for a while <laughs> um, because this is an unfortunate story, but I think it's really important to talk about. Um, and so Uh, In addition to the facts of HIV, uh, cases of the STDs, gonorrhea, syphilis, and chlamydia have hit record highs in the U.S. And so in 2016, more than 2 million new cases of these STDs were diagnosed, according to the CDC. Clearly, we need to reverse this disturbing trend, said Dr. Gail Bolin, director of CDC's Division of STD Prevention. The CDC cannot do this alone, and we need every community in America to be aware that this risk is out there and help educate their citizens on how to avoid it. And unfortunately, this may be only the tip of the iceberg, as only these three STDs, along with HIV, 
are required to be reported to the CDC. And so um, if you add herpes and uh, some of the, frankly, dozens of other diseases that can be sexually transmitted, the CDC estimates that the numbers could be as high as 20 million new cases of sexually transmitted diseases or infections. Um, And the really important uh, thing here is that at least half of those cases are in young people aged between 15 and 24. STDs are out of control with enormous health implications for Americans, said David Harvey, executive director of the National Coalition of STD Directors. The coalition represents state, local, and territorial health departments who focus, whose focus on preventing STDs. If not treated, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis can have serious consequences such as infertility, neurological issues, and an increased risk for HIV. Now, luckily, these STDs are largely treatable with antibiotics, but patients need to be tested to know that they need treatment. If untreated, chlamydia and gonorrhea can cause infertility and long-term pain. Syphilis, if untreated, can affect the brain, heart, and other organs and can lead to a painful death. Um, And this one's, of course, especially frustrating because really people thought that we had beat syphilis way back in the 1940s. Um, They thought that with the advent of penicillin, it was wiped out. And in fact, uh, one of the doctors... Uh, noted a anecdote about how they had been told about syphilis. And then the professor said, oh, but you'll never see a case of it. And that was back in the 40s. And of course, unfortunately, there has been a sharp revival. It is up 18% between 2015 and 2016, again, among the gay male population, Um, but it also affects straight couples with an increase in pregnant women passing the disease onto their babies. Because of course, that's one of the other problems is that these diseases can be transmitted from mother to baby. And so in 2016, there were more than 40 deaths and severe health complications among babies who survived with congenital syphilis. For the first time in many years, we are now seeing more cases of babies born with congenital syphilis than babies born with HIV, said Harvey. It means that women are not getting access to prenatal care, testing, and treatment for syphilis. It's an unconscionable situation in America today. And of course, the upswing for this is pretty much exactly what you would expect uh, if you've been paying attention at all. Several factors are fueling the STD academic epidemic, Harvey notes, funding cutbacks for prevention, education and healthcare programs, an ongoing debate about sex education for young people, with cutbacks in that arena, particularly from this administration, and a rise in social media dating apps have all contributed to the rise. Um, and so that's one of the big things I always talk about. People are always like, oh, well, you know, Uh, what's the real harm with abstinence-only education? And it's like, well, the problem with abstinence-only education is that it doesn't work. It has been scientifically proven to not work. Young people 
are going to have sex. And the only people you're fooling by preaching abstinence only are yourselves. And so then we have young people who are going out and having sex who have not had comprehensive health education, sexual health education. And so they don't know how to properly protect themselves. And yes, you can say, well, they can go to the internet and things like that, but clearly they're not. (laughs) Um, Clearly we are failing to properly uh, equip our youth for the dangers of something that they are going to do. Uh, The abstinence-only education works about as good as just say no did for drug use, which is that it did nothing. (laughs) Um, You know, it's just, I I don't mean to laugh, but it's just kind of, um, you know, one of those you have to laugh or else you'll cry because we just sort of keep pushing against this same brick wall. And um, I don't know what the solution is, but we need to do something. And so, yeah. Um, And so in addition, Bowen notes that the fact that so many of these diseases are asymptomatic with few telltale signals means that men and women aren't getting into their doctor to be tested. We need to get the word out that everyone needs a yearly checkup. And we need to re-educate physicians to look for signs of such, quote-unquote, ancient diseases as syphilis. Now, again, part of the big problem here is the issue of social stigma, which needs to be overcome. We need to start actually supporting people who have these STDs because, you know, we have AIDS walks and we have really embraced people who have AIDS, but you know, we still look down on people who have these other sexually transmitted diseases. And so we need to change the paradigm in order to support these people and to not continue to act like there's something wrong with them. And therefore, they don't want to get help because they don't want to admit that they have anything wrong. Um, And so, yeah, we need to just get out there with information and not be passing judgment or supporting shaming people. And so, yeah, hopefully we can turn this around because it's definitely something we need to do. Uh, You know, people are worried about sperm counts and people not being able to have children. Well, a lot of these things will cause infertility. And so if people are worried about replacing the population, they need to be worried about young people becoming infertile due to a lack of help with these kinds of infections. Okay, well, that was fun. (laughs) That was a fun first half of the show, wasn't it? I promise the second half is going to totally be on an upswing. Um, But first, let's take a little break and uh, talk about some PSAs and listen to some PSAs. Um, The first thing I wanted to do is that I saw a flyer here that I wanted to uh, talk about, which is the March for Racial Justice, which is happening on Sunday uh, at 1230 at the Holyoke Heritage State Park. Uh, It says, creating a just and equitable future for each member of our communities. And so um, if you're interested in that, you can text M4 
as in the number four, RJ, so March for Racial Justice, uh, basically to 66866 if you want. And you can also go to www.m4rj.com. And so, yeah, if you're interested in that, that's going to be again in Holyoke at 1230 on Sunday. Okay, let's take a moment and do some more regular PSAs. Hang on a sec. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, Women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. When you get home at night and switch on the lights, do you feel good about the source of your electricity? Did you know that you can choose to power your home with 100% local, clean electricity? You have the power to say no to the standard mix of polluters like natural gas, coal, and oil. Make the switch to clean electricity produced right here in New England. It's easy. Sign up for New England Wind or New England Green Start without any contracts or commitments. Just go to www.massenergy.org forward slash CET. Forbes Library offers free access to computers, and now they are equipped with tools to make them easier to use if you are blind or have low vision. When you come into Forbes Library, you will find computers with JAWS screen reading and magnification software installed. Trained library staff are available to get you started. These services were brought to you with federal funds provided by the Institute of Museum and Library Services and administered by the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners. Call 413 517-1012 to find out more. I never 
get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Valley Free Radio is hosting a community tag sale Saturday, October 7th, starting at 8.30 a.m. at 140 Pine Street in Florence. We are cleaning out our old vinyl and CDs, and our programmers will be bringing in items for the sale. All proceeds go towards station improvements. Stop by October 7th between 8.30 a.m. and 3 p.m. at 140 Pine Street in Florence for the Valley Free Radio community tag sale. See you there. Okay, we are back, and you are listening indeed to WXOJLP 103.3 FM in Northampton. And we are totally going to be talking about things that are more interesting and less depressing. Though uh, I do want to talk about this one study just because it's one of those things where people might be hyping it up a little more than it is. So. I'm not trying to be a downer, but I do want to inject a little bit of uh, caution about this story. And so uh, it's a study published in the latest issue of the journal Current Biology, and it reports that researchers were able to produce some increased signs of consciousness in a 35-year-old man who has been in a vegetative state for the last 15 years. We chose a patient who had been in a vegetative state for 15 years, showing no signs of change since his car accident, study lead author Angela Suriju, director of the Institute of Cognitive Sciences, and Marc Generaud in Lyon, France, said in a statement. We therefore put ourselves in a difficult position by selecting a patient with the worst outcomes, if changes were observed after the vagus nerve stimulation, these could not be the results of chance. Now, the man had been able to open his eyes, but otherwise had no real indications of consciousness prior to the treatment, which, as sort of noted above, involved stimulating the vagus nerve. And so the vagus nerve is the largest nerve in the body, and it has been linked to arousal, alertness, and stress response. And so what happened was that a device to stimulate the nerve was implanted into the man's chest by a neurosurgeon. During the period when the nerve stimulation therapy took place, the man was able to show attention and even respond to simple orders, such as turning his head or tracking objects with his eyes. He also reacted when someone got too close to him, uh, which his mother noted he hadn't done before. Both EEG and uh, PET scans, uh, the data from those confirmed increased activity in the brain regions which control movement, sensation, and awareness. 
It was particularly comforting to find that the changes we observed after vagus nerve stimulation matched perfectly what is reported in human patients when their clinical state spontaneously shifts from vegetative to minimally conscious, Surigu said in a statement. This suggests that vagus nerve stimulation activated a natural physiological mechanism. Now, again, I want to be very cautious in reporting about this story because these types of patients are often involved in quite complex and painful disputes between family members and or between family members and medical staff. And so one patient responding to one thing cannot be the basis for uh, you know, interjecting into these really complex and painful and, um, you know, really intense discussions about whether or not to keep someone on life support when they're in a pers- persistent vegetative state. Now, again, while some improvement was shown, there was no indication that the patient had regained any kind of true cognitive function that would have allowed him to return to even the most basic of normal lives. And so much more work would be required in order to show that the treatment would be useful in helping patients regain any sort of true cognitive abilities. Now, perhaps in patients with newer brain injuries, uh, there might be a more robust response to the treatment, but we don't know yet. At the start of the study, before any stimulation, the patient scored 6 out of 23, um, which is on a scale of 0 to 23, which assesses levels of consciousness. Dr. Elizabeth Colthard, consultant senior director in dementia neurology at the University of Bristol, who was not involved in the study, uh, told Live Science, At the end of the study, when the patient was on the maximum stimulation, he scored 8 out of 23 on the functional scale. At times during the six-month period, the patient scored as high as 10 out of 23. This is a very small performance difference that is of questionable significance to the patient. And so, again, a bump in basic responses isn't necessarily something that would be useful to someone in their body. Um, You know, it might make the people around them feel better. But again, there didn't seem to be any kind of true cognitive function going on. And so again, it's a very difficult and painful thing to talk about. And so definitely needs to be more research. Um, And so Surigu and her colleagues plan to do a larger study involving multiple institutions and a larger number of both vegetative as well as minimally conscious patients. So hopefully we will hear more about this and maybe there will be a great breakthrough. Um, I just, I like to exercise caution in these kinds of stories, um, especially since this is one patient. Um, But It could be extremely hopeful. So hopefully something good will come of it. Okay, so we are going to completely switch switch gears now and move on to talk about archaeology. And so I wanted to talk about two local stories, uh, one right here in Northampton and one out in Boston. And so um, if you're not sort of 
paying attention because I didn't even notice it until after the fact. I'm sorry to say Uh, you might have missed it. So I wanted to talk about it. Uh, Archaeologist Gregory Waller and Craig Chartier uh, were recently in Northampton excavating a well behind Parsons House, part of historic Northampton. And so the well was built in the early 19th century, uh, though the archaeologists cannot say for certain how it was used. They suspect it was used for laundry and most likely for the house's general water supply. But they know for certain that in 1870, the town built a public water supply, which rendered the well obsolete. It was after this time that the well, like many before it, became a receptacle for trash. Sometimes around, sometime around 1870, after 1870, they began throwing garbage into the well. Then they filled it with dirt and covered it up, Walra told the Gazette. We're not sure exactly when it was filled and covered, but we found a bottle cap that we know was first produced in 1892. So that's the earliest year that it could have happened. Now, the team excavated three areas of the well, the center of the well, uh, in the area surrounding the well's brick walls, which is referred to as the Builder's Trench, and in the area outside of and around the Builder's Trench. We can learn all kinds of things from these items. We try and learn from these projects things like what type of ceramics or materials did they use, the type of things that don't show up in someone's diary, Chartier said. The artifacts we find allow us to reconstruct the history of the time and place. And so by examining items found, they have determined that, for instance, the family had plenty of access to chicken, fish, and pork, but not much beef. They also found examples of blue and white china, which indicate the family was at least comfortably well off. We found clay marbles, pipe stems, a silver pin, utensils, and bone-handled knives, an Indian head penny, and animal bones, Walworth said. I haven't found a clay marble for more than 10 years. Unfortunately, few artifacts from the original indigenous uh, inhabitants of the area have been found, with the exception of a shard of stone, which would have been flaked off as, um, as an arrowhead was made. However, each of the thousands of artifacts and items collected during the dig are carefully cleaned, categorized, and then packed up for transport to Walworth's Connecticut lab, where they will be further cleaned, identified, and then pictures, along with uh, any information that they have on the item, will each be added to a catalog for the site. We ID the items using mostly experience and guidebooks. At the lab, we do some comparative analysis between the artifacts we find here and previous ones from other sites, Walworth said. People have done a lot of research on old collections and artifacts, so there's a ton of information out there that we as archaeologists steal from, Chartier said. Now, this is the only the third dig in the past 30 years at Parsons House, which was built by Nathaniel Parsons, grandson of Joseph Parsons, one of the original founders of the city. Now, the well was discovered when in 2016, Historic Northampton decided to demolish a mudroom attached to the back of the house. It had been in bad condition, was devoid of artifacts, and was not historically significant. Once the room was removed, a large stone was discovered under which lay the well. Now, that's pretty cool. But the only thing better than finding an old well at an archaeological site 
is finding an old privy, as both are often used as one of the most prized of archaeological finds, middens or trash heaps. And that's just what's been found recently behind the Pierce Hitchborn house, which once belonged to Nathaniel Hitchborn, Paul Revere's cousin and next-door neighbor. The house dates back to 1711 and is the fifth oldest brick building in Boston, but it's never undergone extensive archaeological excavations. Joe Bagley, city archaeologist of Boston, explained in a podcast produced by the Boston Museum of Science that the initial excavation of the site indicated not only a four-by-six-foot room that is almost certainly a privy, but also the outlines of two homes that would have previously occupied the plot where the house now stands. Now, as I've mentioned before uh, a little while ago, a privy is actually one of the best things to find at an archaeological site. You'd fill it up with you-know-what, and then also your household waste, because everyone threw their trash out into that, Bagley tells CBS. We're hoping to find the individual's waste themselves, which we can get seeds from what they were eating, we can find parasites, find out what their health was, but then everything else that they threw out from their house. Now, earlier this week, a team of professional and volunteer archaeologists began excavating the clay-lined structure. Bagley notes that in 1650, Boston passed a law requiring that a privy must be dug at least six feet. I expect that, at most, we'll have to go down that full six feet, he says. I hope it's six feet deep, because that gives us the best opportunity to find a lot of things from multiple families. And so already discovered have been fragments of pottery, a piece of a beer stein, and pieces of coal. Now, of course, it wasn't always so exciting to find a privy. It's only been in recent years that archaeologists have finally realized what a treasure trove of information can be contained in such humble circumstances. Um, it's been really one of those sort of revolutions in archaeology, even though it sounds kind of terrible. But in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, this has been a real thing where people have started to say, wait a second, we can learn so much from sewers and privies and middens, um, you know, these sorts of things. And so, for example, uh, noted in Smithsonian Magazine, the Museum of the American Revolution has cataloged some 82,000 artifacts excavated from 12 privies around the museum's grounds, including items from an illegal tavern and a window pane inscribed with a quote from a popular play. They've, esca- they've excavated other privies, and they were Full of stuff, notes Nina Zanarini, executive director of the Paul Revere Memorial Association that owns and operates the house. It's always a treasure trove. For us, it's an opportunity to get at a source of information that's literally literally buried underground. And again, as with the well in Northampton, remains of food could be instrumental in learning more about the lives of the people who lived in the house. We'll learn what they were eating how much money they had, whether they bought good or cheap cuts of meat, Bagley noted. And of course, if any mummified remains are found, which have not yet happened, uh, further information about diet and health could be learned. 
But of course, we'll have to wait a bit because right now we haven't actually gotten to that point. And so we will have to wait to see if anything really interesting comes out of these really humble grounds. <laughs> um, so yeah. All right. So now I want to talk about something <laughs> that I just thought this was a kind of a funny story. Um, because love them or hate them. Uh, this has been back in sort of the uh, public's eye lately, the recent iteration of the iPhone, uh, several iterations, has brought back into the public the uh, color rose gold. And of course, this was certainly not something invented by Apple. Um, they did not invent this color, uh, much like they haven't invented much of anything. <laughs> um, um, it first became popular uh, in Western, uh, in the Western world at the time, um, in the 19th century, when it was called Russian gold, according to Sotheby's. Now, true rose gold is made from a mixture of gold and copper, and it was actually used by Carl Fabergé in his famous eggs. Now, since then, it has occasionally returned to vogue and then sank back into obscurity. However, it looks like a group of Colombians from the first millennium AD were way ahead of our current trend for this rose gold. And so the Nahuanga people were skilled goldsmiths, uh, but chose to burnish items to reveal the goldish coppery components of the pieces. What's peculiar about finding it here in Colombia is that the whole Andean region is renowned historically for mastering the technology of gilding, that is, making metals more golden than they should be based on their composition, said Marcos Martinos Torres, an archaeologist at University College London and co-author of a new study published September 25th in the journal Antiquity. Andean goldsmiths pioneered a technique called depletion gilding. They would start with a mixture of gold and copper. Then, through oxidation and polishing, they could bring the gold to the surface to make the metal look purer, Martinon Torres explained to Live Science. Martinon Torres and Juanita Sanez Samper of the Museum of Gold in Bogota, Colombia, that sounds like a great place to visit, um, examined 44 pinkish metal artifacts from the Nahawanga culture, including nose pendants, necklaces, earrings, belts, and bracelets. Though very little is known about the culture, which inhabited scattered villages in the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta uh, mountain range near the Caribbean coast, it's clear from these artifacts that they were skilled metal workers. And so they found that the items were initially gilded as expected, but then had been intentionally burnished to reveal the pink and orange underlay of metal. And so rose gold artifacts have also been found in remains from the Quimbaya culture in Colombia, as well as the Teano uh, societies of the Caribbean, but the Nahawanga seem to have excelled in creating such artifacts. Now, while more research will need to be uh, 
well, more research is needed before a real solid reason can be offered up for why these people purposefully chose to create such works, the authors had a couple of suggestions. They suggest they may have been burnished after a period of time or at different stages of ownership. For instance, stripping of the gold may have been part of a funerary rite, um, transforming them into offerings which would be buried with the dead. Alternatively, they may have been burnished when given to a young woman at puberty due to the associations of the color red and orange with femininity based on ethnographic surveys of the region. Archaeologists often see the object they study as quite static, as representing a single moment of the past, Martinon Torres said. It's really interesting to see how using scientific methods, we can reconstruct the life histories of those objects and hopefully from that begin to talk about the life histories of those people who interacted with those objects. And so that's one of the really important things that um, I think sometimes we all forget is we go to a museum and we see these items and, you know, they're kind of frozen in time. And we don't really think about a lot of times how people would have used them, whether people would have used them in different ways throughout their lifetime. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of really complex morality around some of the things that we display. And, you know, I think I've talked about it a little bit on this show before that I don't have a good answer for it. Because my answer is I want to preserve everything. Because I think that, you know, people have made these beautiful things and these amazing things. And I want people in the future to be able to see them and acknowledge them and understand how amazing these people were um, in the future. But they're also people for whom the idea that, you know, this is supposed to be perhaps a funerary item and they have potentially put, have potentially purposefully done something to it in order to commit it to the ground and to then unbury it and put it in a museum. There's a lot of complicated uh, morality around that. Like I said, I don't have the answer, um, but I think it's important to think about, and I think it's really important for us all to be a little um, more cautious about how we look at things. And, um, you know, again, my inclination is I want people to be able to see it, um, but I don't necessarily know that that is the right answer, ultimately. Um, it's certainly something that museums will be grappling with, I think, more and more as we become more and more sensitive to these kinds of things. And um, so hopefully, maybe someday, we will come to a consensus answer. But um, for tonight, we are going to have to just wrap up with that ambiguity. And that's okay, because in science, sometimes things are ambiguous. And there's nothing wrong with that. There doesn't have to be a black and white answer. All right. So please stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up next. Thank you for joining me as always. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, episodes from our archives, and other projects, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.